Well, I have, by my own admission, a complicated relationship with the scripture. If we take scripture literally or inerrantly, so without error, or if we take every word as from God, we would be worshiping a God who commands genocide, who tells us that men are the head of women, like Christ is the head of the church, who gives only a slight nod to the ending of slavery and who does not approve of same-sex union. Many of our friends and neighbors, of our family members, have accepted some or all of these tenets. The argument would be that it's from the Bible and thus from God and therefore good for us. When I first came to faith, I learned that a wife's purpose was to help fulfill the vision or calling of her husband. I learned to be loving to all people, but that sex outside of heterosexual sex in the context of marriage was sin, and I learned that to tell the offender would be the loving thing to do. I learned that God told the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child because God was building a pure people unto God's self. Over the years, all of these beliefs and many more have come under the scrutiny of many followers of Christ. And while I have done my own deconstructing, the Bible has remained a sacred text for me. Now, it's true that I read it differently, and it's true that when I read others' interpretations, I am discerning. And I'm asking all kinds of questions about how and why the author or theologian came to the conclusion that they came to. At Sanctuary, we try to be honest. We admit that the Bible has often been weaponized. And as a female pastor, I know what it's like to have someone shake the Bible and tell me with an equally shaky voice about what the Bible has to say about gender roles, Aidy. But with all this, I still love scripture. For followers of Jesus, the story of the Bible is our story. Sometimes it's a cautionary tale, and sometimes it's an invitation to life. This morning, as part of our Reclaiming Scripture series, I want to look specifically at what it's like to find our story in the biblical narrative and how that serves us and what the invitation to us might be. And the scripture that we're looking at this morning begins in Mark 11. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not in season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? 
for everyone, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So there's two things happening. There's a seemingly innocent fig tree functioning the way a fig tree is supposed to function. And there is a temple functioning way the temple was set up to function at that time. This is how the religious leaders of that day have things set up. People come to the temple to purchase birds as a means to access to God. In both stories, Jesus seems kind of mean. He curses a fig tree for not producing fruit out of season. So it's like when Tom and I want coffee at 7 o'clock at night and we drive to press because we forget that we have done this 500 times before and each time we see the sign on the door that it closes at 6 o'clock and each time we get mad and curse it. <laughs> or it's like when my family was in the Tetons. We wanted to take the ferry across Jenny Lake, but it was fall and everything is shut down, but we're like, wait, we're here. Why isn't the ferry running? Jesus wants a fig, and there's no fig, doggone it, so curse this stupid tree anyway. And we see that the curse was real, and that Jesus has power because the fig tree withers and dies. So sort of a sad story. And while arguably the people in the temple were exploiting the poor, the doves were especially popular with impoverished women because they were sold for less, and while the temple was charging people for access to God, the sellers in the temple were technically doing the right thing. In the sense that this is what the temple had become. Animals were sold for people to use as sacrifices to get to God. The Old Testament mandated a system of animal sacrifice for offensive offenses, and that's just the way it was. And if you have problems with Jesus, maybe you want to take it to the higher ups, but really overturning tables and running people out of their places of business. And of course, the religious leaders are mad. Essentially, they're saying, don't mess with us. This is working for us. We've got a system here. It's going just fine. Now, I love the story that Mark tells. Once I get past my Really, Jesus, because who curses a fig tree? Once I get rid of that and I read the story on its terms, it gives me so much hope. It feels personal. It makes me grateful for Jesus and for the text. So what's happening? Jesus' whole ministry is decrying a religious political system that although purported to be for the good of the people, has become about exploitation has become about extortion. And if anything, the way to God is fraught. The temple was allegedly the place where God dwelt. Jesus says, you've turned my uh, father's house, this place that was meant for all people, for all nations, you've turned it into a den of thieves. 
And this den of thieves is not like this neat phrase that Jesus came up with extemporaneously on the spot. He's referencing an accusation from Jeremiah, from the prophet Jeremiah, centuries earlier in which the religious leaders of Jeremiah's days had turned their temple into this kind of hideout for their predatory activities through which they built their parishioners of their money and then retreated to their priestly titles in the temple to claim immunity from their accusation. So if we take Jesus seriously, Jesus isn't neutral. Jesus isn't calm or peaceful or particularly zen. Jesus is furious. Non-violent Jesus seems pretty violent. Jesus says, no, stop. This is not okay. It has never been okay, and it will never be okay. And as a way to illustrate what's happening, we have this fig tree. Jesus is using the fig tree as a metaphor. If you're not living into your purpose to feed the hungry, in this case, physical hunger, in the case of the temple, spiritual hunger, then I will not just rebuke you, I will put an end to you. In other words, the fig tree interprets Jesus' action in the temple. And it isn't just a simple rebuke. This is Jesus saying, this system, it's not working. It needs to end. And clearly the religious leaders get it because they're plotting Jesus' death. Like they think this dude has to die. They like their system. They're committed to their system. Their system is working for them. It's serving them. They're happy for the system to continue. I'm going to get personal for a minute, and you're going to think, what does this have to do with her teaching? But I promise that we're going to get there in the end. That's your little heads up here. So we talk a bit about trauma at Sanctuary, that we all have traumas. For some of us, we have religious traumas, traumas that have happened as part of faith communities or at the hands of a religious leader. But all of us have experienced traumas in our lives. And many of us have come to experience Jesus as healer, the one who cares about our traumas and can be part of our healing. Tom and I planted this church about 20 years ago and at that time, we were part of the Vineyard Movement, a movement that blessed us in so many ways, not the least of it was our love for and belief in the active presence of the Holy Spirit. But it was also true that in the year 2000, when we planted this church, that women could not be senior pastors of churches in the Vineyard Movement. The Vineyard was called the Complementarian Movement, which essentially means men are senior leaders. In the vineyard, women could lead small groups. Women could be on pastoral staffs of some churches, but not all churches. But it was not OK for a woman to be a senior leader. When Tom and I were seeking permission to plant the vineyard, a vineyard church here in the Johnson County area, we'd been part of the vineyard for over 15 years at that point, And we spoke to our regional leader. And he, we knew this person well, and this is what he said. He said, oh, Edie and Tom, we don't have a theological rationale for women senior leaders. You know, one day we might, but we don't have one now. 
And what that means is that you just have to put Tom's name on the dotted line, and 80, we know that you're going to lead the church. <laughs> now, it's not that they were diminishing Tom in some way. They knew that Tom was a full-time medical doctor doing scientific research, and they knew that I'd been on pastoral staff of a church for many years um, and carried a lot of vision for what a faith community in this area could be like. So both things were true. Tom and I would lead together, build this thing we love together, but our roles and the time we could give would be quite different. The thing was we were being asked to sign a document that did not reflect our reality as the only option for us to plant this faith community at that time. And as much as we love sanctuary, and we were on vacation for the last 10 days, and so much of our conversation was, we have the best church in the world. We love this church so much. As much as we love it, I'd like to think that today we'd make a different choice. But 20 years ago, we had a dream, and we didn't see any other way forward. And so when Tom signed his name on the dotted line, we celebrated, but something inside me died. Right? When Tom signed his name on the dotted line, we celebrated, but something inside me died. Our dream began, but at what cost? what cost to us, to the church, to women, etc. Over the years since we've planted the church, I would have rated my job satisfaction as stunningly high. I don't know all the reasons why our community attracts so many uh, kind and welcoming people. I don't know why we attract so many thoughtful, amazing people. We do. We didn't know when we started out that we would make friends, that would be lifetime friends. But along the way, and particularly in a movement that was complementarian and that would go through a bloody battle to become egalitarian, so in other words, go from gender-based leadership to gifts or talent-based leadership, and because we were one of a small number of churches in that movement that had a woman senior pastor, probably three, and none that were our size, um, we, our church, and me in particular, would become a lightning rod for a lot of anger and resistance. During the vineyard years of transition, there were lots of meetings that were brutal, not because someone was doing something wrong, just because that's what it means to make a transition like that. Any of you who face discrimination of any kind know what it's like to fight for something that's not unilaterally welcomed. And of course, if it's unilaterally welcome, we don't need to fight for it. Often when we go through traumatic seasons, we don't have the time or strength to deal with the emotional and spiritual cost to our being. We soldier on. We keep our eyes on the prize. We survive. People of color talk about what it's like going through day after day with multiple microaggressions happening all the time. But our traumas unhealed and left alone simmer inside us, waiting. Several weeks ago, a number of things happened, and all that I had neatly tucked away in a hidden corner seemed to erupt. And when our traumas are triggered, we don't often say, oh dear, I'm feeling some intense feelings right now. I'm crankier than usual and uncharacteristically activated. I must be my unresolved trauma around gender as a female pastor. I was feeling a bit messed up. Little comments seemed big. I was aware that my fuse was shorter than usual. I even suspected what some of the triggers were, but I couldn't have predicted all the internal swirling. 
When things get hard for me, I immediately call trusted friends to talk and pray. I hope you all do the same thing. My friends listened, and I started rambling, and the next thing I knew, countless moments of unkindness were spilling out of me. I was half talking and half praying. My eyes were closed, and I perceived Jesus' goodness and closeness the whole time. And I started out stating facts and memories, but pretty soon I was just mad. I was mad at pastors who thought I lost my way because I cared about gender equality. I was mad at local pastors who didn't want sanctuaries partnership in the flood cleanup several years ago because I am a woman. I was mad at every unhelpful comment that I've heard over the last 20 plus years. And suddenly, all I could see and my eyes were closed, and all I could see was Jesus in the temple, turning over tables, stopping the money tenders, and saying no to a system that was corrupt and not functioning the way it was supposed to function in a way that supported free and easy access to God and care for all of God's children. Suddenly, I was Jesus in that temple, and I found myself saying, no more. Stop. This system has to go. I'm done. The fig tree no longer had my sympathy. <laughs> I was angry, and I was hurt. And for any of you um, who have found healing from trauma, you know that one way or another, you have to relive some of the details. At Sanctuary, we believe it's great if we can re relive them, being aware of Jesus' closeness to us. My moments were as intense as you'd expect. My friends held space, and they gently encouraged my process. And then like that, I was done. And like that, I felt like someone had poured healing oil on my wounds. I felt like Jesus was saying, oh, I'm so sorry for those moments where you weren't treated well. I would never want that for any of my children. I love you. I care. I'm with you. I'm always with you. I was with you then. I'm with you now. But mostly, it felt so meaningful to me finding myself in the story of God, in God's story. The scriptures offer a lot, and we'll continue to hear about different ways of approaching the text. But there's something quite healing and life-giving and affirming about finding ourselves in the Bible story. Our invitation this morning is to read the Bible. It's to read it. It's to get inside its stories and to find yourself, find ourselves inside those stories. And if we think of the story this morning, if we think of Jesus in the temple, think for a moment, who would you be? Would you be Jesus turning over tables? Maybe you're someone trying to get to God, but you experience or you've experienced obstacles. Maybe there's ways in which you're a money changer or someone selling doves. 
For me, I can find myself as Jesus saying no, but I'm also aware of the many ways that I benefit from systems that work against others. I wonder how many of you find yourself in systems in your lives today that you recognize, like the temple, don't just need a little tampering with, but need to be overturned. But here's the thing. This is only one story. There are a gazillion stories to find yourself in. This is a quote from Tom. I find myself in Nicodemus. Nicodemus has all the boxes of privilege for his culture checked. Seemingly, everyone. So Nicodemus, of course, finds the way into goodness through Jesus, baffling and offensive and undoing. But he makes it. He's there at the end, tossing all his precious boxes to the wind by caring for the ragged, dead body, that of Jesus who he loves. He shows me what it actually takes for me to be born again. I've got another friend who's obsessed with the book of Acts. He reads it over and over and over and over again, partly for inspiration and partly because he finds himself in that early story of mission. Every time he shares the good news of Jesus at work, every time he finds himself speaking to power, he is Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, participating in God's mission. I oftentimes hear people quoting Esther, who knows that I've been brought to this position for a time such as this. But of course, lots of our identifications are more challenging. We identify with Joseph being a difficult younger sib. We identify with Saul's insecurity and all his crazy triggering. We identify with Jonah whose fear and judgment land them in the belly of a whale. We identify with women in the scripture and their lack of rights and often lack of names and constant challenges, but often also with their often many heroic moments. Five daughters changing the law of Moses. Two women defeating a powerful general and nation. The many heroic women in the Jesus story and on, and on, and on, and on. I'll close with this. When I was praying with my friends, God, God could have found a ton of ways to speak to me, to get through, to let me know that God was with me at that moment. But it was so meaningful to find myself in the temple to see Jesus so clearly, turning over those tables, saying, no, you can't do this. This system isn't working. To embody that spirit myself, to be able to say to all of me, that wasn't okay. Those kinds of things are never okay. The system is not okay to know that God was with me. It was as though Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, was making meaning of my life, of my suffering, and of my healing. May it be so for all of us.
Amen. Why don't we stand? At this time, we're going to transition into worship along with communion and prayer. The worship team can come forward. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you wish to be fed by Jesus, you're welcome to participate in communion. There are stations in the front, in the back. There's cards on the table if you're looking for a prayer that's already um, been written. Feel free to take one with you. And this is also an opportunity um, for you to receive prayer. If there's anything that you came with or anything that you were stirred with this morning, there are ministers available to pray with for you in the foyer. I love you so much, God. Life isn't easy for us. I'm so grateful, God, that you've given us a text where we can find ourselves, and you've given us a text, a story. We find ourselves, and we find you. A God who was broken for us and who's made a way. A God who says no to that which is unjust, not with a little tinkering, but with saying this whole system has to end. We love you, God. Fill us as we take you into ourselves this morning. Amen. <laughs>